from the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. This is In Conversation With. Supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Presented by Stuart Alford. And produced by Fresh Air Studios Plymouth. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, with another edition of our In Conversation With podcast. And we have a special today. We have an emergency services special, which is fantastic. And I'm really, really excited to be joined by Chief Superintendent Matt Longman, Plymouth Police Commander. Hello, Matt. Hi, good to be here. Gavin Ellis is Chief Fire Officer for Devon and Somerset Fire and Rescue Services. And online, Will Warrender, Chief Executive of the Southwest Ambulance Service NHS Foundation Trust. Welcome all. Thank you so much for joining. I've got questions for all of you, and some of them I'm sure there'll be crossover. And I will start with the police, only because, I don't know if you know, but I used to be job. Did you know I used to be job? I don't think I knew that. No. So there you go. Right. I'd have done more research. You would have done, yeah. and that's why I didn't tell you. <laughs> There's a lot to research there. What do I call you? Do I call you Matt, Chief Superintendent? Matt Sir? is fine. Matt is all good. I tell you why, because you know Steve Pierce, former Assistant Chief Constable. I've been friends with him for years now, but I still struggle not to call him Sir, because he was Assistant yeah. Chief Constable, and I made it halfway to Chief Constable. I got the constable bit. Didn't quite make it to Chief Constable, but there we go. Anyway, you started a different career. You small village in Congsbury, is yeah, that right? Yeah, Congsbury. Congsbury in North Somerset. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And joined the Merchant Navy. That's right. Yeah, Which I did. You, you have something in common with Will in that you took to the sea first. I took to the sea. I always wanted to. It was a strange thing, really. It was a lifelong ambition, which I did with P&O. And when I got there, it wasn't quite what I thought it would be. And I opted to get out without really knowing what I was going to do next. And I suppose happenstance to a degree led me to the police door. Okay, and you joined a different lesser police service, didn't you? Is it Hampshire? You yeah, joined? I joined Hampshire. And it's weird, that was nearly 20 years ago now. You still sort of don't forget those early years. Yeah, I was a PC and a sergeant there working in a variety of roles across Hampshire. So 2003, March 2003. Well, this will make you laugh. I left the job in 2003. <laughs> That'll make you feel old, wouldn't it? So I did 17 years in and I've been out longer than I was in. So it doesn't feel right. like I was ever a copper. But Time's funny though, isn't it? Because I now meet people, some of my officers, who were born after I joined the police and that makes you feel a little bit old as well yeah. but it doesn't feel like that it doesn't feel no. like that when you've got 25 years service yeah. no it doesn't the first time you employ someone who's born in the 2000s that's right that's when you just start thinking oh god I feel old there we go and you're now police commander for Plymouth that's right yeah, yeah. so how many people do you look after there that's difficult to put an exact number on because there's a number of police officers and support staff who work in the city but aren't actually under my command if that makes sense force wide but it'd be about 700 okay Gammy, if I remember rightly you're fire service sort of man and boy really aren't you i am yeah i left school and joined the army and left and then joined the fire service my career started with northamptonshire around about 23 years ago and left there in 2010 to join devon and somerset okay and will you spend a bit longer in uniform well different uniform to the one you're wearing now but a royal navy for many years yeah, I was incredibly fortunate, Stuart, to spend 32 and a half years in the Royal Navy, the first part of my career at sea, and then more latterly ashore, a very varied, rewarding, incredibly enjoyable career that took me around the world. And I joined straight from school. It's all I ever wanted to do until I decided to make the leap into the ambulance service. Yeah, and that's quite a change. So you commanded, I'm looking at your bio, five warships. You were in charge of the conduct of the National and Coalition operations across two and a half million square miles of water in the Gulf. So looking after a few ambulances, bit of a doddle, right? I am jesting because I understand you've got five and a half thousand workforce now, 10,000 square miles. 
and a fantastic group of volunteers who augment our people on a daily basis responding. It's a big area that we cover, as you rightly say, Stuart, with geographically the largest of all English ambulance services stretching from the middle of Gloucestershire, south and west to the Isles of Scilly, and then east to Bournemouth. So another but very enjoyable and different challenge. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a heck of a leap. And actually, I'm going to come back to the size of the area because, I mean, we we're briefly talking before we were recording with Gavin about the very strange geographies we have. We've got issues of rurality, which I'll come back to. These podcasts are supposed to be fun and friendly, and they are, but there are a few things I want to ask you about the public would think I should ask you about, things like response times, waiting times, that sort of thing. And it's not with any criticism. You know, every industry and every public sector body is under pressure. But I'll start with you, Matt. We've seen police officers under immense pressure responding to awful things like the Kiam shooting and yet also facing extreme criticism like the background to the shooting, perhaps, and the licensing. And I won't go into that particular issue because I know very, very thorny and ongoing, but that must be very frustrating for you that you're facing lots of pressure, increased demand, but also criticism of your officers. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's kind of the ultimate challenge of police leadership, probably always, but certainly right now. You've seen in the news, so we've got a national picture, will affect how people feel locally, but also without doubt there's some actions that we take locally that will influence all of those things as well. So policing has got to be linked to local communities. That's got to be the future policing, and I think we can take further steps into that about being close to the community and make sure you've got the confidence of them as you deliver those services mm. but of course to do it you're trying to balance lots of different things all the time so for some people perhaps their only contact with the police might be a 999 call they want to know that we're going to be there asap for other people it might be a more routine demand or they might have emailed us or they might have been burgled overnight so it's not an immediate response there and then but they still expect that service very quickly it's important so, to them isn't it exactly so we're always reminding ourselves to not become desensitized to that it's not just another job at work this is somebody's moment in need whether they've somebody who have come into contact with the police a lot or perhaps their only time but it constantly you're trying to juggle these different demands and try and meet the needs of the whole city as best you can is it frustrating yes of course it is but then we need to do something about some of those causes don't they so some of those are within our gift to change when you see some of the headlines that have been in the news recently and i think as i say above all about public confidence we need yeah. to do more you know in the very short term to engage with people just tell them what we're up to tell them what we're doing do you agree that, I mean, a recent HM Inspector of Constabulary said that the public confidence and trust in the police is hanging by a thread? Do you sense that locally, or do you think that's referring to a national picture more? I think he is referring to a national picture, and I think they are probably deliberately emotive words that have been used, but to articulate a very fair point. So I think, without doubt, the work we're doing shows that confidence in policing has dipped, and there's mm. all sorts of reasons for that. It's something we should take really seriously because it doesn't really matter what you're talking about so some people for local policing that conjures up an image of you know dicks and the dot green my local beat officer mm. and for many people that works but for a lot of people it doesn't work so if you look into obviously the cyberspace for example is it so relevant well i would argue that actually it still is because even if you're attacked through a cyber offense that's committed by somebody the other side of the world you're still living in this city and that's you're still turned to, to you isn't exactly it? you're living in this city yeah. you'll turn to this police force and your confidence in us to deal with with it is really really important so i think their emotive language used nationally to make the point but actually yes confidence is lower and we need to work really hard to get it up because it's absolutely foundation of policing yeah policing by consent yeah. yeah and gavin i mean you've had similar i suppose in that you've seen some fire officers in the country and i must stress this is not your service but let's say the grenfell tower where you see people doing incredibly heroic things and yet facing criticism for the way it was handled 
that must hurt as well. It does. I think I would probably speak for all three of us that we've got some fantastic people that work for us. The majority of our workforce are absolutely fantastic people that go out and do a courageous and fantastic things every single day. And it is difficult to see when people try their best and then come into that criticism. And I think quite often with inquiries and things like that, you'll tend to see that the criticism can come out after the inquiries, particularly when it's easy to be able to reflect on some of the activities that may have taken place (laughs) over the period of time of the emergency when you're making dynamic decisions and thinking about people's lives and also risking your own team's lives to be able to do good. Yeah. So it can be difficult, but actually I think what we all try to do is learn from those incidents as well. So we do work collectively together through some of our joint principles to make sure that when we have a response, we do that collectively together. And that was some of the learning that came out the 7-7 bombings and things like that about emergency services working together. Mm. So we always try to reflect that in everything we do with tabletop exercises from the lower ground all the way through to sort of the senior executives. So it is difficult to see criticism come, but we are a public service. We reflect the public and the communities, Mm. and it's right that we provide the service that the public wants. And if that comes about through change, through those inquiries, then we need to move with the times and adjust what we do to be agile and respond to that similarly to the way we did during COVID. It's funny, you mentioned something I used to call in the police, the nine o'clock jury. I remember the first time I was on CID, seeing something that happened the night before and seeing these old detectives picking apart and criticising that what the guys on the ground had done the night before. And I'm thinking, you weren't there. You weren't there when the bricks and bottles were flying. You don't know. You know, don't criticise what you don't know. And it's the same with historic inquiries into actions of any service, but emergency services in particular, where we judge people of 20 years ago by the standards of today. And I think that's really unfair. And sorry, before I go on to Will, I mean, you led an inquiry into the fire in extra at the Royal Clarence, didn't you? Were there some learning points out of that? I did. That was a difficult incident for us and for the local communities as well. It was an old building, historic Mm. building that we'd had that unfortunately was damaged and lost to fire. And that was, again, crews working really hard. The fire started in the building next door, which was under renovation. Mm. And what we did find was that a lot of what we considered to be the fire protection system, so stairwells the fire doors and things like that being removed because of renovation work that was taking place and that allowed the fire to spread rapidly through the whole of that building quite significantly and then through lateral spread spreading into the hotel Mm. in the early stages of the incident we had crews within that property in the royal clarence hotel and were searching for missing residents luckily Mm. they're all found but we did have an occasion where a firefighter pushed his hand against the wall to try and identify where the wall was because it was full of smoke and he needed to fell through and would have fell probably three stories, probably oh, to his death. Yeah. So it was a very, very dangerous situation, really mm. focused on what they needed to achieve. But actually, and again, reflecting back on what I just said about how we measure risk and put people into dangerous situations, it's really important from my perspective that when my staff go to work each day, they come home and go home to their families yeah, and are not putting any undue risk. So we've got a mantra in the fire service, which is... The greater the threat, the higher the risk we're prepared to take. But what we won't do is we won't put people's lives at risk, though firefighters, we won't put their lives at risk if a property is already lost or a life is already perished. Yeah, so And that's, that's difficult though, done. isn't it? Because the very people who join the ambulance service, the police and the fire aren't the sort who hang back. And it's against their nature to stand back and do a risk assessment. I couldn't believe it when it started coming in that there was a punch-up and I wasn't allowed to wade in and protect someone. I had to think about 
myself you never did in the early days and quite rightly it's moved on but it's hard for them and i'm going to come to you in a second world but a question that will lead into you what do you make matt about the met decision to not attend mental health incidents unless there's a life at risk because that's going to lead very much into <coughs> will's service dealing with that yeah well i mean that's a big topic at the minute and has been for some time but i feel like it's starting to really expose some of the finer points of that debate, I suppose. What do I think of the Met thing? I think, first of all, there has to be acknowledgement that the police, through a number of years, have found themselves becoming the service of last resort. And to a degree, all three of us will feel that. But there are a number of other partners across the UK that will step back out of office hours. Quite understandably, they're not supposed to be working 24-7 like we all are. But if you don't know who else to call, you generally call the police. We have an organisation, as just been said, full of brilliant people who join to publicly serve. Mm. And they will step into any space, to be honest, where they feel that they can help people. What we've got to understand is that if you're doing the roles that don't necessarily need a police officer, in the case of mental health, obviously often not the right person to be dealing with it, then we're not getting something that perhaps only a police officer can go with. So there is kind of a cost of being in that space. So quite understandably, there's a big debate that says we're going to have to wind this back a little bit. And most of all, to look after the people who make the call, get the right people to them. However, I'll talk for where I believe I am rather than where I think any other force has decided they wish to be. My view would be that if somebody's having a crisis at that moment and the police can help at that moment in time, that's absolutely a police role. Mm. And we would turn up every time. I know officers will. And do, uh, alongside colleagues, some really amazing things. You go to award ceremonies, people have really put themselves at risk, actually, mm. to try and help people. What it can't be is our role to then carry on looking after that person for eight, nine hours while they get looked after. Very good point. And thank you. I haven't slipped you five quid to say that, but that leads exactly in to what I was going to ask Will, because, Will, you're picking up people who are injured, sick, very, very unwell in ambulances, and your guys and girls take them to A&E and then sit outside there for an entire shift. That must drive you nuts, because surely you've almost done your job, haven't you? Aren't you helping a failing service who isn't taking them at the door? Well, I think the really important thing to say, Stuart, is that all parts of the NHS have been under significant pressure over the past two to three years. What you are describing is one part of the NHS that is under significant pressure, urgent and emergency care. We need to do our job in the ambulance service. Our hospital colleagues are doing their job. And then other parts of the system into social care also need to be doing their job so that we're able to get our patients out of hospital when they're fit to leave. Because actually what you've just described is what we call a flow problem of patients through the system. Mm. Actually, about a third of patients perhaps might be ready to leave hospital. But if they're ready to leave and they can't get out of hospital, then that inevitably creates a blockage at the front door of the hospital, which is what you've just described. Mm. I have a significant concern for patients in the community who we are simply not able to get to. And therefore, we don't have what we call eyes on them and we're not able to assess them. But I'm also very concerned about the impact on my own team, because as you've described, it has an impact on morale. There's a theme coming through this discussion about the quality of our people in all three emergency services. And they join the ambulance service to go to people in their greatest hour of need. When they can't do that, it has a real impact on them. No, absolutely. Do you feel your teams are the right people to deal with people having mental health crisis or are you changing the way you respond to those? We are changing the way we respond. I think the first thing to say is that 
the patient absolutely needs to have the right response. And that includes a mental health patient. And it's probably not, and I think Matt would agree, it's not necessarily a police response. It's potentially not an ambulance response. So what we've done already is work very closely alongside police colleagues in the Bristol area to put more mental health experts into one of our call centres. We've got two call centres, one in Exeter, one in Bristol, and that's included a Avon and Somerset police officer. We've also, though, put more mental health experts to answer mental health 999 calls that come through to the ambulance service. And then the third thing that we're working on, which will start to appear over the next 12 months, and you may have seen announced by the government, are what we call mental health ambulances yeah. and response cars, which absolutely are the right way to respond to some of these very sad, complicated, and quite difficult in some cases, patients. Yeah. And I remember from my time in the service dealing with mental health patients who've had crises and actually in some ways it was when you got the most satisfaction when you were able to help you know i dealt with one guy whose voices in his head had told him to get in the sea in january and we pulled him out and we ended up doing cpr getting him to the hospital it took three hours to get his heart going on its own but he survived and i got the most lovely warm letter saying thank you you know and you get satisfaction from helping so like you say all your services were people who want to help also, I've got to tell you, it's quite funny. Another one I dealt with, it's sort of funny, but it was sad, but we did end up laughing. A guy had had a concern for welfare called brother saying, I'm concerned for my brother. He gives permission to bosh the door. We bosh the door and there's blood everywhere. The guy's clearly slashed his wrist, poor guy. And I see him going over the back garden. So I chase him and it's peeing with rain. I hoon across after him in the dark. I rugby tackle him on a muddy field. We're rolling about in the mud. I managed to get a help shout out. And of course, I can hear sirens coming from every direction where I'm getting help. And all I could do was hold on really tight. I couldn't restrain him other than just like a massive bear hug. And we end up facing each other face to face in the peeing rain covered in mud. And we both started laughing. And we both said, there's nothing wrong with us. Are there two grown men rolling around in the mud? And it relaxed the whole situation. And we relaxed. And I said to him, you know, I can't let you go. And he said, no, I know. I said, but I'm going to just relax a bit. And we just sat there. And of course, the guys come running in and all they've heard is me shout help. They don't know why. And so I had to kind of say, it's all right, it's all right. You know, he's all right before anyone waded in, you know, thinking I was under attack. But again, I had a very, very kind letter from him saying that we'd help. So it must be awful to think that there are people out there who need help. And you've got all three services here. We've got people who would help, but it's whether it's the right people and it's stopping other responses going on. Yeah. I think as a city as well, we're becoming more and more aware of mental health issues and how to try and deal with them, not necessarily treat, because that's not our expertise, but just how to effectively manage them for somebody who's probably having an incredibly tough day. And that's what mm. should be at the heart of all our thinking. No, nobody wants to step away from helping anybody. That's why all our workforces turn up. But it is about getting the right person to that individual who needs help as quickly as you can. Mm. We touched earlier about rurality, actually, and the size of the space. I mean, you're all different geographies. I think, yeah, you are all different geographies. I think Will probably has got the largest geography, but we're all dealing with huge rurality. And we're also dealing with a population that doubles, triples, quadruples in size over the summer, which causes horrendous problems. And especially for you, Gavin, people arriving, setting fire to Dartmoor with their barbecues. And you were telling me digging holes in the beach, which doesn't sound too bad, except... No, it doesn't sound too bad, but actually we're starting to see the wildfire season now. It's been dry for a long period of time. It's increasing the heat. Even on the way here today, I've notified of three different wildfires that we've got ongoing at the moment. Really? Wow. So we're starting to see that. Picking up with the barbecues, we've worked with local businesses to try and ban 
disposable barbecues. They seem to have worked with us slightly to change the word from disposable to instant barbecue. So, <laughs> Which uh, doesn't really solve no, the problem. Solve the problem. So a couple of issues that we see with that is that people would take them up onto the moors and start quite significant wildfires where we could have sort of 20 fire appliances up there at any mm. one time and dealing with those incidents for a long period of time. The other issue that we see is that people tend to bury them on the beach rather than dispose of them properly. And we've seen, and Will has probably seen this as well, with children burning their feet, stepping over the barbecues that have heated up the sand and causing quite significant burns to their feet. So they really are a challenge to us. And it's really about people thinking about what they're doing, where they are, if they're going to have a barbecue, where they're going to do it, try and make sure that they use the proper stands and things like that. But moving on to the holes in the beach, we're starting to see more and more holes being dug in the sand. And we had an incident a week ago on Saturday on Exmouth Beach where... A group of young men had dug quite a large hole, about six to eight feet in diameter and depth, and dared one of their friends to get buried up to their neck in the hole, facing the tide to see how long he could stay in there before he essentially bottled it and had to get out. What they didn't account for was that the water was rising from underneath as well. And because of that, it was, and it essentially sucked him into the sand and he couldn't get out to the point where one of our off-duty colleagues was cycling past and managed to see him and made use of a parasol stand as an airway for him. But at that point, the water was lapping over his face and he was fully submerged. And it took about seven fire appliances plus Coast Guard and RNLI to be able to dig him out. It was probably the closest we've come to having a death on the beach this year where the water was lapping over his face. And that was the day after we lost the two children in Bournemouth. Bournemouth. So it was quite significant, actually. But it appears to be, what we're noting is that it's a trend on TikTok where people are encouraged to dig these holes. So it's a bit of an issue for us at the moment. Really dangerous. And I don't think people realise the danger they're putting themselves in. And others who then have to try and rescue them. when Absolutely. Well, thankfully, that person lived. Yes. Hopefully we'll be doing adverts for you about how not to dig (laughs) holes in the beach. That is absolutely horrendous. I was just doing a quick internet search, thinking about your service has relatively recently accepted a pay deal, haven't they? And that must be difficult for you, seeing guys and girls putting themselves at risk and they're not being suitably rewarded. And I'll come to Will, because I think there's big issues in the health service with that as well. That must be difficult for you. Yeah, certainly. So nationally, because the pay award is arranged nationally for the Fire and Rescue Service, and they've just had a pay award agreed for... 2022 for 2023 and that comes into effect from the 1st of July this year for the second part of the pay. We wrote to the ministers and we support the pay award that the firefighters and staff have received because with the cost of living crisis and the work they do we really believe that they deserve it and that's been after Mm. a number of years of pay freezes Mm. leading up to that point. I can't talk on behalf of the other two agencies but for fire and rescue that money comes out of our budget we're not funded for that so it's left us it's not an increase it's actually a decrease in your budget yeah we'll be seeing the payment for that and it's left us with quite a significant gap in our budget for this year and for next year and we don't know what the pay award will be for the following year either so Mm. at the moment it's a bit of the unknown but we've got some real challenges facing us as we come out of the cost of living crisis looking at the rate of inflation and the impact it's had on our budgets but also the pay award that the staff have received which i say is absolutely right and they deserve it but we need to be able to pay for it and we're going to see a change in the profile of the service will be leaner Mm. as we move forward and we need to really focus and adapt the way and the service that we can offer to our communities as we move forward i was going to come on to and i will come to you will in a second with the same question about the pay for people doing a really difficult job especially as you were saying well when they're demoralized because of spending shifts outside a and e and so forth the conversation will continue but first chamber chief's quickfire questions 
This is where I, Stuart Elford, get to ask some of our members some rapid-fire questions over two minutes, mostly not related to their job, but there are maybe a few bits. And I have the famous red buzzer in front of me, and if I don't like what they're saying, or I think they're lying, or they take too long, or I just fancy it, I will... Press the buzzer like that, and we move rapidly on. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Azza Gazim. Come in, Azza. Hello. Hello. Hello, Azza. Azza, I know you from Diversity Business Incubator, but you wear a number of hats, and you are an interdisciplinary artist. Yep. What does so that I wear mean? many, many different hats during the week or during the day. It means I'm an artist, I'm a designer, poet, as well as a social media person. And what's your background? Where did you study art? I was born and raised in Plymouth up until I was 16 and then moved to Dubai to study fashion. So I gained a lot of my work experience and networking connections from there and then I came back. So Plymouth has always kind of been an anchor for me. The choice between Dubai, London, Paris, you chose Plymouth because it's where it's happening. Yeah, it's also because of the fact that mom and dad have been here for the past 30 years, so they're not leaving anytime soon. Yeah, it's our gain and Dubai's loss, I have to say. Thank you so much for joining us. Just before I move on, how can people find out more about you? Have you got a website, got a blog? I have all of them all on my personal social media pages as well as my art page, which is Azza's Gallery. Azza's so Gallery. So a lot of information can be found on my Instagram as well. Okay, well, look, people will no doubt look that up. And we are now about to start our two minutes of quickfire questions. I hope you're ready for this. I hope it's not too painful. But your two minutes starts now. Chamber Chiefs quickfire questions. Where were you based? Plymouth. Uh, What's your strap line? Be you, be true, be happy and be inspirational. I love it. What's your favourite quote? Uh... To be a rainbow in someone else's cloud, which is a Maya Angelou quote. Wow, I love it. Maya Angelou, I like that. Most inspirational person? Is it one and the same? Uh, more or less. And also Alicia Keys. I'm a big fan of hers. Ah, well, I was going to ask you. So what's your favourite lyric? Um, It's from the song Underdog. So it's speaking about a song that's um, being kind of hidden, but also seen at the same time. So that's probably... I can't really pinpoint exactly what the lyric was. Oh, too late then. It can't be your favourite. Sorry, no, moving on. What makes you laugh? Don't say Um, me. Sometimes you, I would say. (laughs) Thank you. Right, moving on. Uh, What's the best thing about Devon? Uh, The seaside. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, country or sea? Sea. Sea every time. Absolutely. Uh, Best business support organisation. No pressure. Uh, well, I have to say diversity business incubator. Yeah, right. I'll let you get away with it. Yeah, I'll let you get away with it. Zoom or Teams? Zoom. Uh, claim to fame? I have designed a jacket for Alicia Keys, as you've seen it on BBC The One Show. No Very way. Good. I'm going to ask you about that at the end. All right. Uh, cat or dog? Dog. Oh, always. Uh, uh, EastEnders or Corey? EastEnders. Curry or pizza? Curry. Of course. Uh, uh, It's the first film you saw? Lion King. Oh, brilliant. Uh, uh, Innie or Outie? In? (laughs) (laughs) And that's your two minutes. God, that went too quick. I still have like a half a dozen questions still to get in. I'm so (laughs) sorry. And I didn't buzz you enough. I'm just giving you a buzzer. 
Just for that. There we go. That's just... Did you say you designed a jacket for Alicia Keys? Yes. What happened was I was living in Bristol and when she announced her world tour, I thought it would be an amazing idea to design and gift her a jacket in person. And then COVID and the lockdown happened. So I spent somewhat of a year trying to get her to see it on social media and took a leap of faith when the BBC One show were interviewing her and they ended up showing it to her on the air. Brilliant. I did not know that. You hid that in your bushel, didn't you? Yeah, I've seen her like perform. I held on to those tickets during COVID and went to see her last year. However, it still hasn't happened yet, but I'm hopeful. She's going to wear your jacket in a performance. She's going to see at some point in this lifetime, she's going to have that jacket. Oh, brilliant. Just before I go, you were one of our 30 under 30 winners, weren't you? Yes, I was. And for that, I'm forever grateful to you in particular for having such an amazing organisation in the first place. Oh, bless you. It's nothing to do with me, but thank you very much. That's really, really kind of you. That's our time. I'm so sorry, but Azagazim, thank you so much for joining us. And I'm looking out for that Alicia Keys jacket. Yeah, it'll be out on my socials somewhere. But also, thank you so much to all the Devon and Chamber team. You guys are amazing, by the way. Oh. So much love for you. Well, likewise for you guys and for TBI, who we have immense respect for. It's a pleasure and a privilege working with you. Thanks ever so much, Azagazim. Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. In conversation with, supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors. Now, back to the conversation. House and building and commercial premises safety, fire safety has got better and better over the years. Cars are safer. Does that mean your workload's going down? It's probably fair to say that our workload is changing. So the profile's changing. So although nationally we're seeing fire-related deaths reduce, we have seen an increase last year of fires generally. And we've seen an increase of 24% over the last year. And that's because of the longer drawn-out summers the wildfires and things like that, we provide a lot of support to our partners. So we, what we call claps behind closed doors, and that's so the welfare checks, supporting the ambulance service, and also the police about mm. making entry into those properties. So yeah. our workload has increased, but we also saw some really fantastic work being done during the COVID pandemic, where we right. worked closely with the other agencies. And in particular, we trained for Devon and Somerset. I know we'll have more support from the other fire and rescue services in the region. But we trained 22 firefighters to support Will to drive the ambulances during COVID. Right. During that period of time, the success of that was fantastic. So our firefighters received enhanced training from Will's teams. But we saved more lives during that period of time as firefighters. And we have done probably in about the last five years through RTC reduction property fires. So it's also indicating that there's work that we can do to support our partners to be able to have a greater impact on our communities. That's fantastic. I'll come back to that because I think about interagency working. I'll ask you all about it in a minute. But I did say, well, I'd come to you about the pay award. Are you struggling to get and retain staff? You've got, I think we said, 5,500 strong workforce covering a big area some may be very demoralized by sitting outside a and e for long periods not able to help as much as they want it must be a big issue to you and then on top of that if they feel that they're not being remunerated properly that must be tough so it is tough it is a big issue i think it's fair to say that we've really focused during the periods of industrial action on ensuring that 
we can provide the best possible service to our patients in the communities across the southwest. And I have to say, Stuart, that during those periods of industrial action, which of course largely for the ambulance service have been resolved now, but not in other parts of the NHS, we saw a slightly different response from the general public as well, who turned to us slightly less on those days of industrial action. And that meant that there was a little bit less pressure during those days. That point combined with the fact that we really did plan and mitigate for the risk of industrial action, we did that very well, meant that our service on those days of industrial action was really quite good. Mm. Did you say then that your pay dispute is mostly resolved in this area? It's largely resolved for the ambulance service. We have members of Unison, members of the GMB, but also some of our staff are members of the Royal College of Nursing. And of course, I don't believe the situation with respect to the Royal College of Nursing has been resolved, but it largely has for paramedics and emergency care assistants who are the majority of our patient-facing colleagues. This brings me to this point about interagency working. And, you know, in the United States, paramedics and firefighters are one and the same, aren't they? Do you see that you're going to end up merging or just are you already seeing back office services? You know, it seems to an outsider crazy that there's three control rooms. I don't know if there is. There might not be now, but services being shared across them? We've had some brilliant support from our police colleagues and from our fire and rescue service colleagues. I described earlier on the support from the police with respect to mental health responses. What Gavin described there during the period of COVID in particular, the support we got from all fire and rescue services across the region made a tangible difference to our response times for our greatest acuity patients. And I think there's a really important point about the three services working closely together. I wouldn't stretch the analogy and say, we're going to combine to one control room, we're going to combine into one service. I think that's a stretch too far. But I think the expectation that we work very closely together from a taxpayer's perspective is right. And I think we are doing that. And Gavin described a moment ago, the behind closed doors work that they do. When they go in so brilliantly into people's homes, they look for trip hazards, which may cause a fall for an elderly person, Mm. which if they get upstream of the problem means that the person doesn't fall. And Mm. with our ambulance delays, it's not then left waiting on the floor for an extended period of time. So there's a lot we can do together. I think that's right. I think, was it Nelson Mandela who said we've got to stop fishing people out the river and got to go upstream and find out why they're falling in? And I think that's Mm. where all three services are under a lot of pressure fishing out. Somebody, and I'm not saying you guys necessarily, but government, the society needs to think about where people are falling down earlier. And do you see, Gavin, a greater collaboration? Do you see that you'll end up working alongside more closely? I do, and I think some of that is driven locally by our teams on the ground and our middle and senior managers and leaders bringing that work together through initiatives, but also that drive from central government about how we look to work together. So fire and rescue and police are both together under the Home Office, Mm. ambulance service obviously under health. But we have done a lot of work in the past, and I know my predecessor set up the Southwest Emergency Services Collaboration, which I know Will certainly attends, and that's about how all of the partners in the Southwest, not just Blue Light, but the wider partnerships can work together. So at the moment, there is a white paper out on fire reform, which was issued to Fire and Rescue Service probably around about two years ago now. Mm. And we've responded to that through the National Fire Chiefs Council on that paper. We are awaiting the response to that consultation from the Home Office, which we think will come through next month. Now, I think there will be a drive for a closer 
work relationship, particularly between fire and health, mm. because of the outcomes that we saw and the success that we saw right. from the outcomes of COVID. So we do an awful lot. So I would say that from Fire and Rescue Service, only a third of our calls are fire-related. There's around about a quarter of those are false alarms that we still attend, and that may be in places like hospitals and care homes that we still need to attend. But the rest are made up of special service calls, so whether that's an RTC, so a car accident, or actually the majority of our work now is around supporting those with mental health concerns and those collapse okay. behind closed doors and things like that. And that's working close with health. So I can see a greater alignment with health through that white paper. So it'd be interesting to see what the outcomes from the Home Office is. Does that working collaboratively help this rurality problem? Because you've got a huge area to cover. And Will, I think, am I right in thinking now the ambulance service are paying private ambulances to cover some of these rural communities? What we're doing is using private firms to augment our resources on the road to ensure that while we are growing and increasing the number of ambulances on the road, that takes a period of time. And in the interim period, then we're turning to some private providers, as we call them, to work very closely with us to ensure we can provide the service we need to. Okay. Matt, that rurality problem for Devon Cornwall is a huge area to cover, Mm. isn't it? As we alluded to earlier, the population swells massively over the summer. That must cause your guys a bit of a headache, to say the least. (laughs) Yeah, that's one way of putting it. There's probably a couple of issues. So there's the year-long, as you say, the force is quite big, but also looks quite different in different places. So my command is the city. I've got a colleague, and I used to work in that area, so I have an idea what his job's like. He covers the whole of Cornwall. My counterpart covers a county, I cover a city. So I think the art, probably for all the public services, is to probably not overcomplicate it too much and just trying to think, what are the core things we have to deliver? And that doesn't fundamentally change, I don't think, certainly across the constabulary. You then just got to be pragmatic about how you deliver it and not get too precious about this is the Devon and Cornwall way and just face facts, it's going to look different between mm. Newquay and Plymouth and furthermore, it's going to look different, as you just said, between Newquay in the summer and Newquay in the winter and Plymouth, for example. So I think there's two things. The simpler we can make police forces and just get back to the basics of what people want the more flexible the force becomes and then we need to be skilled at moving it around because you guys don't get extra money in the summer from government do you to cope with the extra influx of people no although that too was in the report we talked about earlier the hmis report that came out has talked about the funding formulas and i can't speak to the other agencies i don't know what yours is looking like but certainly it doesn't take that into account and people probably don't realize that but it's quite an important fact when you get depending on which figures you look at nine to eleven million people visit the area that's a significant strain on the whole of public sector Mm. largely unfunded so Mm. it is something that in my view needs a review a former colleague who used to be not now i must say chief executive of somerset chamber said we should just put up some roadblocks on the major roads in and just charge all the visitors and the politicians who are coming down to their second homes in dartmouth and sulcombe and whatever would soon fund you a bit more so you know that's still in the back pocket the chamber of commerce technique of just blocking all the roads i'm not serious i'm not serious but matt you've had to deal with some particularly interesting visitors were there seven of them seven quite big visitors you had to look up there were seven and we didn't charge them at all we just let them come yeah but it cost a bit it did cost them a bit and i think probably fair to say all of us around here felt that and and a huge number of other people not just in devon and cornwall but across the whole region yeah it was a really really interesting job it was one of the 
highlights for me in terms of obviously just being involved in a job like that's really interesting, mm. but also just the enormity of it. It's kind of a once in a career thing and the planning and the architect and managing a whole range of risks, whether it be protest or potential CT, et cetera, et cetera. And having it go so well was really good. I think it is linked to something you were talked about earlier as well. Though. So we've all talked about the need to work together and how well we collaborate. I mean, if ever there was an instance, that was it. Who knew that at the most tense moment in the command room of that whole operation where we were really having to make sure we've had a bit of caffeine and kept our wits about us out of the blue one of the main routes we're going to use suddenly has a trailer fire on it which right. i was momentarily quite convinced was a setup for somebody trying to you know the protest block of road. Yeah, but yeah. it wasn't at all it was just a fire just a fire because um, it happens but everyone had Sorry, not just a fire Gavin, just, but just you know what i mean just <laughs> it, it wasn't more sinister than that <laughs> yeah. but because of all the planning and because people have worked so well together the fire officer in the control room jonathan just steps forward and deals with it and steps back so i think that was a demonstration of how well it can work together we could probably take some learning from that and do it into everyday service delivery but yeah it was a really interesting time g7 it didn't cause you any stress at all it was fine all this gray hair has definitely been since g7 <laughs> since g7 yeah, to yeah, the day yeah yeah and important to remember our armed forces colleagues who contributed oh, greatly to absolutely. that operation you know another great example where the three emergency services the armed forces and different parts of the community really did come together and i have to say hats off to fire colleagues police colleagues for the way that particular operation was handled. Yeah, a very, very good point. You know, there's a time when our slightly overcrowded island can be a bit snobby and divisive, but actually what it's always been very good at is when it really comes down to it, people can collaborate better than I think any other country in the world, as far as I've seen. When it really comes down to it, all those differences get put aside and away we go. When we looked at the planning of G7, we fundamentally looked at three areas in our minds, which was the event itself, the public, but also attendees to it, notably protesters and i think there was something like 88 different causes of protest that people came to protest about ranging from very large well-organized ones like xr extinction rebellion and others down to just one two people groups who had a point to make but an awful lot of people and a right to make that point, a hundred percent so the challenge for us was can you balance those three and keep them all happy all equally (laughs) <laughs> not I'm happy, happy. <laughs> as it were Treat them all. if we're in the middle we'll be okay and I'm not sure we expected collectively that all the services that did quite the success that we did and I think most notably with the local community who at one point were really kind of like you know this is going to upend us for a bit and it did not everyone I'm not sure there'll be some people who listen to this who will go no actually I was still really fed up with it but on the whole because of all that planning because of the way we kept all those services going mm. communities felt that life did go on the event ran well and people did get to come and protest as you say as is their right and it was a good event for them as well so i think that was the measure of success for us yeah we're almost out of time but i've got a couple more questions for each of you i'm going to ask you all if i can the highlight of your career to date preferably something funny but it doesn't have to be the highlight i mean yours might be g7 but i just wanted to ask you i noticed in all your bios a very similar theme that you all at some stage have a specific mention of a commitment to cultural diversity and inclusion why is that so important to you? And I'll come to Will first. What does it mean to you? Why is it important we try and be so inclusive? Because by being inclusive, we will be better organisations. We will be more effective. We will think differently. And frankly, we will do the right thing by our people. We have about a 50% workforce split between men and women in Southwestern Ambulance Service. We don't have the same level reflected throughout the organisation. So we don't have anywhere near as many women in senior roles. So that's Mm. really, really important that we change that. But fundamentally, we need to do the 
right thing, and that's why it's high on our agenda. And what about cultural diversity in the sense that the healthcare services have traditionally been made up of a lot of people from other countries who have been added great value, huge professionalism, great skills and abilities. Policies lately at government level, I'm not going to ask you to criticise government policy because we're all apolitical here, but can't help when you've got staff shortages and you know there's good people who'd come and work for you. Well, what we are still able to do is recruit people from different countries. We've got some paramedics working for us from New Zealand, for example. So we're still able to attract. And I think that adds to the equality, the diversity and the inclusion agenda that we're trying to push so hard. Yeah. In the Foreign Rescue Service, I met with a colleague of yours who's in charge of apprentices and was an apprentice herself. And she gave a talk at the South Devon College Apprenticeship Awards. It's really inspiring that you're taking people with that route. So you don't necessarily have to be academic. You don't have to have a certain background but you can take more people and why is it important to you just picking up on that apprenticeship point i think the reason why we've gone down that route is first of all the levy we draw yeah. down on the levy but actually we recognize we want to recruit people for their values rather than their skills and we know that if we get the people with the right values we can train them and teach them the roles that they need to fulfill within the fire and rescue service but actually it's really important so you'll notice on my bio as well that i spent a bit of time with the hmic frs inspectorate mm. and set up the fire service part of that when that was introduced in 2018 Sorry, just for our listeners explain what that is yeah certainly so prior to 2018 there was an inspectorate independent inspectorate that was set up for the police which was the, yeah. his majesty's inspectorate of constabulary yeah 2018 that was expanded to take on fire and rescue as well right. uh, so i was seconded to go and set that up for the fire and rescue service and lead the first round of inspections and from my perspective from a personal perspective i was really proud to do it but i've got four daughters and each time i went into a fire and rescue service would have the methodology but in the back of my mind i would think would i want any of my daughters coming to work here mm. and i want people to work for devon and somerset fire and rescue service and think I'd be proud for my family to work here. So that's why I think diversity is important. Picking up on what Will said, it will make us better. Our diversity of thinking will be better and we'll have better outcomes for our communities. Mm-hmm. And we need to be reflective of our communities as well. We mentioned rurality and we've got three cities that cover Devon and Somerset, but we've got huge sparse areas as well. And it's important that people in our communities see the service that reflects them yeah. and that they can aspire to become a part of the service and that we can use those skills and put something back into the community. Absolutely. I mean, the Chamber's trying to do the same. I've been working with Diversity Business Incubator and talking with, who's now one of my directors, Jabu Butera, about why I don't have more people who are from ethnic backgrounds join as members of the Chamber. And he says, you don't look like them. You don't reflect them. You don't reflect their values and what they see. And so it's really, really important. And Matt, what about the police service? You know, it must have been, I think, historically seen as a racist or a sexist service. I hope that's long gone. I think the balance of recruitment, especially male-female, is nearly there now. If it isn't, I don't know. But why is it important to you what does it mean to you Mm, sadly i don't know that it is entirely gone i think recruitment is one thing but progression through the organization into specialist roles remains a challenge across police forces across the uk and you know the attitudes of some within the organizations there's been some debate still running as we speak why is it important i don't think i ever get through a police interview without mentioning robert peel but you know the public (laughs) and the police the police the public that routine i would agree with everything that's just been said and it all applies to us you need to be representative of the organizations that you serve that's how you build engagement trust and how you deliver good policing 
I think also about a diversity of thought. So you want different styles of leadership, different thinkers coming into the police. I would like to see the future policing get a little bit more excited mm. about the way we're going to challenge some of these issues. Policing mm. needs to evolve and keep up with a rapidly changing world. And we need to be really up for that challenge. And sometimes we can be a little bit stayed in our leadership approach. So I think it's a diversity of thought as well as all the things that have just been said, which I agree with. Okay, and just before I come to the final question about the highlight of your career, preferably funny, no pressure, you're all rapidly thinking, oh my God, can I tell that story? What can the business community do to support you? So very quickly, Matt, what would you want out of the business community? Speak to us. Speak to us. I'm encouraging my staff to come in and support the engagement I keep talking about. Mm. is as much business as it is local residential communities. Mm. If we're not getting that right, find out who your team are, invite them in. We're trying to do it anyway, but the easier you can make it for us, the better job we'll do. Brilliant. Gavin, business community, what would you like from them? Similar, really. So you'll be aware that part of the requirement of the Fire Rescue Service is to enforce the fire safety standards, which we'd have seen as the outcome of Grenfell. But actually, again, getting closer to the business community, inviting our staff in so that we can work with you and business leaders to make sure that properties are safe so that the built environment remains safe for not just the workers, but the visitors as well. So it's those sorts of things that we'd like to be involved further with. Yeah, happy to help. And Will, what can the business community do to support your service? I mentioned at the very beginning, Stuart, the brilliant volunteers that work alongside the more regular people who go out and help our patients across the community in the South and West. And I think for the business community, supporting volunteers who work for them would be something that I would say, we can't do what we do without our brilliant volunteers. So the support of volunteers, from my perspective, from our perspective, really important. That's great. Thank you so much. So our final question, no pressure. I have to cut it out if you're all really dull. Highlight of your career. I'm going to come to Will, that poor guy. I'm putting him on the spot. Highlight of your career so far? I am going to be dull because the past three years, I've been in this job three years. I have a fantastic career in the Royal Navy, but the past three years have been really difficult. And the highlight of my career, honestly, is leading this organisation through the most testing times, COVID and beyond, and still being able to provide the service that we do. I know that's not a funny, but... It's not dull, though. It's definitely not dull. I mean, you can take great pride in that. Well, all three of you can. You've been leaders at a time of what has probably been the toughest time in a century. Gavin, what about yourself? I think similar to Will, really. I've only been in the post that I'm in now for around about six weeks. I didn't know that. I would have given you a much harder time (laughs) if I'd known. I was in the deputy role before that, leading the service, but... I think the challenge is coming back into service in 2020 after my national secondment and going straight into COVID in charge of all of our fire stations at the time and then moving through has been significant, not just for me, but for the organisation as well. Mm. And we're seeing the outcomes of that now play out afterwards. I feel really privileged to be in the role that I'm in leading such a fantastic organisation. So again, it's dull. What I see within our staff and to be able to lead them in such a difficult time is just fantastic. Yeah. Matt. Well... Very similarly, in a sense that Plymouth has had a really difficult, as you said, for reasons people know, a couple of years. It is a massive privilege to sit in the seats that we do and lead that through. But it seems strange to raise that because they're really tragic events, many of which are in my mind. But it is still a privilege to lead through it and see people perform at their best. However, I'll add an operational one just to end on a lighter note, which would be G7. So there's not many times in your policing career (laughs) that you get to say things like launch the Wildcats off the back of a warship out off Cornwall. It's a thoroughly entertaining time. There's a number of stories. Will's laughing, sorry. I've got to say, Will's laughing because he's thinking, I've did that every week when it's, I was in the Navy. It's, it's, that's just a regular Saturday for Will. I've done that. There's lots of stories that I think I would be probably not good to share here. One that will stick in my mind is that in the control room, we did have a member of the FBI. So working with the Americans was amazing because they arrive on a scale like no other. Yeah. And they arrive with a very limited firearms capacity. 
that we knew about and still under our farmers laws. And it was interesting one day when I just felt my hackles rise early one morning when nothing much should have been going on in St Ives to realise it sounded like there was a firearms incident. We might have just shut down half of St Ives mm-hmm. um, when I asked a couple of calls around the room because that's not a great day when you've got that many world leaders yeah, in, nearby. It was just the president's wife had fancied popping into an art gallery to look for a picture and the Americans had decided that maybe they'd just put on a firearms containment across St Ives without fully appreciating that that's not something that happens often in St Ives. No, and it, I and, and had to just be slightly sort of managed through good intent, yes. slight moment of panic. So Bless our cousins in America. Lots but... we learned for them, entertaining times and definitely something I don't think I'll be repeating in my career. So that no, was a highlight. Hey, look, from my point of view, I genuinely say this, I'm so grateful, not just for you coming in, but from what you guys do. Some of the listeners will know I recently was helped by a couple of your services when I tested my motorbike helmet on the back of a BMW and had a ride in one of your ambulances. So I am incredibly grateful for the work you guys do. Please pass that on to your teams. But most of all, the listeners won't know, but you've all given up your time at almost no notice whatsoever to get into this studio and do this. And I am incredibly grateful that you value the business community and talking to them because we value what you do. And Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. Anytime. See you all. In Conversation With is supported by Westcott's Chartered Accountants and Business Advisors, a personal and local service that values relationships above all else. Westcott's, we're here. Produced by Fresh Air Studios, full audio production services for business podcasts and corporate communications. Visit freshairstudios.com. Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpott. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess-Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Video content by Mark Stevenson. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved. Yeah.